Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Miguel Sancho from More Than You Can Handle. And if you want to ignite your relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends Travis Chappell and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, Miguel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and, and thank you to the audience. I hope I can be worthy of their attention. Yeah, I, I definitely think you you will be. Uh, there, there's so much of your story that I think is really compelling, and I, I definitely obviously want to talk about your new book because I think it it says volumes about who you are as a person. It tells, it gives a really in-depth look of, of who you are. But I think I really want to set the stage of your kind of background because I think it's a it's a really interesting context that you come from. So your background is really as a as a journalist, a a producer. Can you can you tell me a little bit about your life journey getting to that point? Like what got you started in that that kind of world? Absolutely. At the risk of uh, reciting my entire resume, I'll just say <laughs> that I, I'm one of those people who got out of college with really very little direction, and I spent a couple of years kind of trying different things and not being particularly good at them. And I was on the verge of going to graduate school. My family's educators, and that's kind of, you know, the family industry, if we have one. Mm. But uh, a friend of mine, you talk about networking, 
a friend of mine that I'd met through the New York music scene of all things worked at a TV show. Mm. And he said they needed somebody, a, somebody, a junior staffer to, to do this rather exotic job of running around and doing undercover reporting um, with hidden cameras for the investigative unit of this show. And it sounded like a real adventure. And so I said, yes. And it turned out that, yes, it was a real adventure. <laughs> and I just caught the bug. It, it, it was one of those businesses that just seemed to mesh beautifully with my particular constellation of talents and, and kind of personality quirks and passions. And so that's what kind of got me into it. And mm. I spent, you know, 20 years basically uh, working at various shows, network news shows, network news divisions. And then in 2018, my career took a turn and I ended up going freelance and, and basically building a small little production company and PR company with my wife who's the PR person on the TV and journalism side. And we've just kind of together uh, expanded that to the point where now I'm kind of able to do a couple different things, juggle a couple different clients on the TV side. And I'm very grateful that I was able to have the time and the opportunity to write a book. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely want to chat about the book. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned your, your talent. So you've obviously been working in a lot of ways as a, as a storyteller and in, in different, different mediums, did you have any inkling maybe in your, in your childhood or, or early, you know, pre getting this job opportunity where you saw those kind of skills present themselves or was it truly just a, I'm not sure what the future holds for me growing up? Well, there were certain things just in terms of my, my, if you want to call them talents or, you know, aptitudes, uh, I was always a very curious person. I was always the guy, you know, kind of asking, you know, vaguely inappropriate questions to adults <laughs> and uh, other kids. You know, I always felt that when, you know, the, the, the world of kind of vacuous, you know, chit chat, small talk mm. just made me feel small, made me feel like I was wasting my time. So I always wanted to, you know, engage with other people in a way that we would talk about real stuff, real stuff that happened to us, uh, be it good or bad. And so I think that kind of lends itself to the journalism uh, that I like to practice. Right. And also I was, and I possibly continue to be, something of a, you know, vaguely anti-authoritarian. I didn't like being told what to do. Mm. I, um, you know, was uh, had a bit of an attitude. And that's not necessarily great in many levels of professional world. It's absolutely, you know, a negative in certain regards. But in terms of like, you know, being driven and not being intimidated by, you know, some company or some organization that is trying to kill your story, um, yeah. that came in handy too. And then just there's something really magical about television or about video production in general, being able to, you know, marry, you know, words to pictures and tell stories uh, in that way, even though, you know, most of what I do is at best, you know, qualifies as, you know, low budget movie making you still have an opportunity to tell a story. And if it's an important story, it's something you can feel good about. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've talked about telling important stories and you've been telling other people's stories for a, a really long time. I mean, you've had a, a long running mm -hmm. career doing that. Um, but your, your newest book gets very personal. It talks about your own experiences upon finding out that your son was diagnosed with CGD. Can you talk a little bit about what happened when you first got that news, you know, how that hit you and your family and why did you begin documenting it? Because sometimes when you're in that situation where something, you know, tragic happens, you're just in survival mode. So what, 
what pushed you to start kind of documenting that journey for the public to read? Right. So to take the first part of the question first, you know, I'd had a very blessed and very fortunate life. Um, I, I wasn't, I was never, you know, extraordinarily wealthy, but I certainly was well cared for, never neglected. And I was given a, a wonderful education and nothing really bad had ever happened to me. So mm. in 2012, when our son, Sebastian, was diagnosed with this very rare, very lethal immune deficiency that was not going to go away, I was totally unprepared for that. I totally, you know, fell apart. I tried to manage things and be stoic and and kind of keep a stiff upper lip, but I was not prepared for that kind of burden, that kind of disruption, frankly, in the in the trajectory that I saw my life going forward. And I think most people kind of assume certain things about the future. And when that's all completely turned upside down, it can be extraordinarily uh, traumatic. And so as I kind of went on this journey, which is, you know, a... A polite way of saying ordeal that so many rare disease families or families with sick kids go through, you know, I would read about other family stories and inevitably, in most cases, the other families were portrayed as, you know, being these heroic martyrs who found infinite supplies of compassion and strength, and in some cases, infinite supplies of capital to either support their child or support research for their child's cure or do something really heroic. And I knew from my own experience and also from the experience of the families, many of the families, it's not always that pretty. When people uh, get hit with news like this, it tears families apart sometimes. People get depressed, they get divorced, they get drunk, they do all the ugly things that, you know, you know, don't get bragged about. And that's what made me think there's a story here. There's a story that hasn't been told, at least not um, hasn't been told to death. And, you know, I'm not that interesting. I'm not that important. But the experience of what these families go through when indeed they are dealt with dealt more than they can handle is something worth documenting. And so, you know, the, the book kind of started out first as a couple of different, you know, Facebook posts and blogs. And and then at some point I said, you know, it's the subject matter is important enough that it, it is worth taking seriously. So I decided to try to turn it into a book. And thanks to some networking and some lucky breaks, I uh, was able to uh, to make that happen. Yeah. What was that process like? Because I know there's a lot of people who find themselves maybe not in this exact situation, but they find themselves where they have this story. They feel like it's going to be helpful to other people, or maybe they know someone who has a story and they want to help get that story out there. What were the steps you kind of took to convert what was essentially a lot of threads of Facebook posts and turn them into an actual physical book that you could you could take out there. You know, there's a there's a standard procedure for nonfiction books separate from uh, fiction. With fiction books, you essentially have to write the whole thing. And again, I don't want to talk like an expert on publishing, but this <laughs> right. is what I've told and this has been my experience. You know, with a nonfiction book, excuse me, with a fiction book, you basically have to write the thing and then show it to people, and it's either purchased or it's not. With a nonfiction book, fortunately for me and anybody in the field, you essentially write a proposal, which can be, you know, of anywhere between, you know, 10 and 30 pages. Uh, and then you write a sample chapter. And that's what uh, gets shown typically to uh, potential publishers and editors. Obviously, it helps in an immense way to have a uh, an agent who takes the project on first. So that's kind of the procedure I followed. I, I, you know, put together the proposal. I put together a sample chapter. I was fortunate to get picked up by a wonderful agent named Luke Janklow. I just want to give him a shout out at any possible opportunity. And then, 
I was very fortunate again to get um, set up with the wonderful people at Avery Publishing, which is this great imprint of Penguin Random House. So the the real question though is how to write a proposal that people are going to pick up. And the only advice I can give is twofold. A, make sure that it is, especially if it's a personal story, a memoir, make sure that it's just as honest as you can make it, you know, warts and all. And being mindful that in this world, you know, the and all is as important and as valuable as the warts. And then also just, I kept reminding myself, you know, just because something happened to me doesn't really mean it's interesting to anybody else. So I remember I, I saw Tom Wolf speak once and he said, what, whatever your book's about, whatever its deep messages are, each page has to fill a basic responsibility to entertain, to keep the reader's interest. Because no matter how righteous the project, if the reader isn't engaged at a, at a sufficient level, they're going to put your book down and go watch YouTube, which is something that I do all the time with books. I, I, the, my book was written by a, by a guy who does not finish a lot of books. <laughs> so uh, I just felt this com- compulsion every single time. Like if I were reading this, would I get bored now? And whenever the answer was yes, I just made a note to myself that it, it needs work. Yeah, yeah. I heard a um, a friend of mine who's a, who's an author always uses the quote, "Don't be afraid to kill your darlings." You know, and to, and it is. It's it's especially hard. I can imagine telling your own story to get rid of those things that might be unnecessary to the story arc or to the characters you're trying to present but uh, maybe are deeply meaningful to you. Was there anything specifically that you felt very strongly about where you were like, I, I want to get this in the book, but the more you went back and forth with an editor or the more that you sat there and really thought about it, it just wasn't a good fit for the structure of the book overall. Yeah. So the way I went about writing the book, I was given, uh, I was given some wonderful advice, which I'd love to pass on to anybody who's thinking about writing a book. It basically, there's a two-step process to write a book. The first part is, step one, write a crappy book. Don't be at all intimidated by that blinking cursor on the monitor thinking, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I'm on the same dance floor as Jane Austen and William Shakespeare and Jonathan Franzen and, you know, whoever you think is the best writer in the world. Now, suddenly I'm being going to be compared to them and feel that every single keystroke has to be pure genius. No, just crank through, get something on the page, beginning, middle, end, no matter how crappy it is. That's step one. Step two, go back and try to turn your crappy book into a good book. That can be the harder step, but you, but you certainly have to do step one first. By the way, I'm not sure I completed step two. I know I did step one. <laughs> Whether I actually completed step two, I leave up to, uh, to the reader. But uh, yeah, so when I did that step two, I realized that some of the kind of what I thought at first was like, you know, soul bearing and, you know, very sincere, very pure, honest kind of confession that would be inherently, you know, gripping was actually just navel gazing and, you know, kind of hackneyed in some regards. So I, uh, and it wasn't just me, by the way, who thought that it was my wife, it was, uh, uh, my editors, you know, just cut some of that stuff down. You know, again, just because the sentence begins with I does not mean it's interesting to anybody else. Hmm. So, you know, when I was talking about, in particular, kind of the journey I went on and trying to, you know, explore different modes of self-help that I did in order to kind of try to regain some stability, keep my act together enough that I could be at least adequate as a husband and a father through this crisis. Yeah. You know, again, there 
there came a point where less was more with that section. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's there's a quote I always loved, and I come from a video production background, and so I, I always would think about this quote, and it was that perfection's achieved not when there's nothing more to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. And it made it a lot easier making those cuts or making those decisions when you remember like, okay, it's not when there's nothing left to keep adding because there's always some other element or some other piece of our story, but when we can strip it down to like, what is the core message we're trying to get across? And uh, I, I always think about that. I couldn't help but think about that as you were kind of sharing your perspective going through the process of, of editing. Um, I, yeah, I there's curious. a famous quote. I'm going to get it wrong. It's either from Pascal or from Descartes, who wrote a letter to a friend and said, sorry, I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I love, I love quotes like that because when, you, when you're in the middle of writing or podcasting or whatever content creation you're doing, like those just stick out in your mind. The minute you start fluffing something up or adding something that shouldn't be there, it just sticks there and it just rings like a huge bell in your head. Like, don't do this. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I want to ask one more question before we kind of pivot into uh, kind of the second half of our conversation. You mentioned Mm -hmm. the the importance of being authentic, and that's something we talk about a ton, like show warts and all, be real, genuine, let people see all of you in, in your work. How much resistance did you feel internally to that when you first started writing? And what would you say to someone who is maybe sitting there and they want to share their story, but they're scared of maybe showing some of their weaknesses or some of the, the struggles that they've been through? Well, just think of it as turning lemons into lemonade. You know, people are all suffering, right? We're all dealing with something. We've all had setbacks. We've all felt pain. We've all cried or we've all 
you know, been in a situation where you maybe should have cried but didn't. And there's a wonderful thing about writing as opposed to public speaking or uh, video production is that it's inherently intimate. It's inherently, I would, I would claim it's inherently empathetic. When you get engaged with a book, it can be like, like a hand reaching out for you. Mm. And that it's a wonderful medium in which to make a connection with your, with your audience, with your reader, with whomever, with yourself. And so particularly with the act of writing, uh, I think it's the, the more honesty, the better, because, you know, people read BS all the time, right? Whether it's an advertising <laughs> right. or a post or something that, you know, uh, something that's always kind of in character, you know, social media in particular, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a version of people that they want the world to see. So it's, it's somewhat manicured in a form such as, you know, a book length manuscript, the terms are different. The relationship with the audience is different. And therefore I think the relationship with the text itself should be different from the author's perspective. Right. Yeah, no, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And I, I really appreciate the insights into kind of the book writing process. Cause I know there's so many that have reached out or listened and are, are going through this process. And I think these are all very valuable reminders. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of people that have helped this process move along. You mentioned your, your agent, you mentioned, you know, your wife reading through it, you mentioned getting this feedback and even the push to kind of get the book out there. And so I, I want to kind of push the conversation into this topic of networking, since this is of course, build mm-hmm. your network. First of all, we ask every single guest that comes on the show, this question, and I'd love to hear your answer. Uh, do you believe that who, you know, or what, you know, is more important and why? <laughs> it's a complicated question because I've always <laughs> approached, I've always approached certainly every professional relationship with the idea that if you're going to take up somebody's time, you have to be adding value in some capacity. You mm-hmm. have to make it a worthwhile thing for them. Otherwise, they're just going to remember you as somebody who wasted their time. So, and the way to make sure you're not wasting someone's time is to make sure that you know something that they don't, make sure that you're you know, providing them something of valuable information. So certainly, you know, the, the, the quality and the quantity of what you know is very important in the networking uh, aspect of it. But then, you know, you, on the, the flip side of it is you can't just be a, a walking encyclopedia kind of reciting trivia out into you know, the void. Your knowledge um, is only, you know, certainly of marketable value if you, if you share it with the right people and the right people hear it. Hmm. So I will say this, though, in a, in a world where, you know, say you're looking for a job or something, there's a baseline level of competence that people assume about every resume that crosses the threshold, right? And oftentimes, if not the majority of times, what makes a difference is whether or not you know the person, right? Whether or not there's somebody who can personally refer uh, right. you to a hire, uh, somebody who's hiring, whether or not the person who's hiring is going to, you know, enjoy being in your company, regardless of how good you are at your job. So, you know, all of those things make it really, really valuable to, to be out there. And by the way, it's not the easiest thing for me. You know, I, 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 there's been, you know, years when I like had a stable city staff job and I never went on LinkedIn, you know, there would be invitations from like 2012 that I didn't check until 2014. So it's something that I always, you know, remind myself is necessary to do. And it's, it's about more than, you know, social media invites and, and clicks and uh, friend acceptances. It is, it is really a matter of, you know, networking in, in, 
in a post-COVID world, hopefully, when we can return to physical meetings and physical congregations and, you know, making an impression on people. Right, right. What, what was the time where a connection in your life, so one of these people who maybe it was a good opportunity for you to, to network with them or to present an idea to them, when was the time that a connection in your life led to a moment of success for you? Well, let me say that I think literally everything that I could qualify as a success in my life has been enabled by a person who I met who was kind enough and generous enough to you know, take a chance on me, to invest in me. And that's, um, you know, what, what these professional relationships are all about. Right. And I would say, I mean, there's so many, but here's, you know, there's one example, you know, I was working, my first TV job was at a syndicated show. I I talked a little bit about that. And in the course of that work there, at one point I went on, I was invited to judge a national journalism award. And by the way, that doesn't mean that much. Journalism is a very self-congratulatory business. We're always giving (laughs) each other awards. But I was invited to one of these award judging things, and you spend a weekend at a hotel with the other judges talking about you know pieces, and they take it seriously. And there was a guy there who worked at CBS, and we were just at the same table, and we had a good conversation, and you know we talked about the business, and we talked about work, and I uh, I think I might have made him laugh once or twice with something I said, and um, he ended up being the guy who recommended me for uh, a job at CBS News. And I was very blessed to be able to uh, to work there for eight years as a result of that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, that's an incredible connection to, to make. I'm kind of curious. We, we talk a lot about networking and obviously we always seem to think about the idea of networking up, right? We talk about, you know, how do you meet that person who might be able to give you a, a leg up in a company or who's someone who might be able to help move a project along but obviously you've had uh, you've had good success you had a good career and you know you sometimes now i'm sure find yourself in a position where people are trying to network up to you or people are trying to uh, connect with you and i'm just curious do you do you a lot time to specifically try to help those that are coming up within the industry do you do you try to network with people who maybe are in the in the hierarchy of i guess business who might be just starting or, or just coming up, how do you find time to, to build those relationships and try to help the next round of people that are coming up within, within the business? Sure. Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from a family of teachers and, and educators. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of my, one of the things that makes me happy is to be able to, to the degree that I have any wisdom or any, you know, any acquired skills uh, to pass them on to to people coming up it, it's a it's a very fulfilling activity and it's also helpful because you know the more competent i can make you know younger uh, less inexperienced excuse me less experienced people the more competent i can make them you know the the easier it'll be to to manage the projects that i'm doing and we're all you know and especially you know these days i'm and any given week i'm could be you know juggling you know, a couple of different projects that might need people, you know, if anything, I don't, I, I need to make more time for that because, you know, we're, we're always looking for other folks to work with and to, to bring on, um, sometimes on very short notice. So, you know, I mean, just, just today I, um, was talking to an old colleague and he told me his son's about to graduate from college. And is there any possibility of, um, trying to, trying to get him some work? And I said, absolutely. You know, it would be, it's wonderful because, you know, I'm 50 years old now, and 
for me, I like surrounding myself with people who are energetic and positive and can, you know, kind of keep morale up if I get down or if I get cranky or if I'm, you know, losing steam in some regards. It's really nice to have people around who are not, you know, necessarily cheerleading all the time, but are just bringing that that energy and that desire to learn. Right. It kind of brings me to my next question. You know, you mentioned a, a lot of people tend to default to that kind of faux, like the rah rah, or just the just positivity, positivity constantly, and and network like that. But sometimes there's that can be an inauthentic way of networking, just as much as as any other form. So I'm curious if you could choose just one networking tip to give to somebody. Uh, what would that be? Oh, just always get the other person to ask to talk about themselves. Hmm. Um, always you know, be infinitely interested in whatever it is that they've got going on and, and ask them about themselves. You know, whenever I meet somebody for the first time or whenever I, you know, reconnect with a friend, I just, you know, how are you? How are, how, how are they treating you? I'll say sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. even if it's somebody who's, you know, a big boss, you know, how are, how are you getting along? And whether or not, you know, they want to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets, they'll certainly, you know, appreciate that the first, you know, question is, concern for them. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be asking for something until you've earned the right to ask it, I don't think. So, you know, just, you know, and, you know, some of the best job interviews I've ever had have been interviews in which I talk very little about myself. The, 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 the hirer, the person who I'm interviewing with, you know, begins talking about their situation, the job or the project, whatever. And I just, ask enough about that and express interest and give enough feedback to let them know that, you know, I'm listening and I'm interested and I'm focusing on the details of what they're saying and I'm paying enough attention to ask a semi-intelligent question. Um, mm. That can make a very good impression. Yeah. It's it's clear why you saw success as a journalist because that is such a hard thing to do. It's easy to go into a conversation and self-promote. Obviously, I'm sure you see that within the industry. You know, there's there's the instant you know, hey, this is what I've done. This is my resume. Here's what I do. But it, it's amazing how some of the best networkers spend a lot of time, like you said, asking the other person how they're doing, how they're feeling, what they're hoping to accomplish through a through a conversation. And that that's one thing that's really changed my perspective in the last couple of weeks. Is I I had a friend of mine who said instead of instead of asking, hey, what's up? He said, just ask people, how are you feeling? He's like, that phrase is going mm-hmm. to unlock a lot deeper conversation. And it is. I I spend a lot of my time, I, I work with a lot of uh, victims of sexual abuse and trauma. And a lot of times mm-hmm. just asking, you know, hey, what do you hope to accomplish by sharing this story? Or, or how are you feeling about this right now? can open up a conversation a lot better than me just trying to go through my list of 20 questions and just move through it as fast as I can. Um, so I think that's really, really invaluable advice. Yeah. I mean, just establishing some baseline level of human connection and empathy. And by the way, you know, I, it's something I need to work on. I mean, I still, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can get distracted. I can get caught up in my own stuff. I can get, uh, you know, I'm, And certainly when I was in the middle of the crisis with our family, you know, I was wrestling with, you know, severe, you know, depression and anxiety issues and irritability, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could be a jerk. So, you know, for some people, you know, having that, you know, empathy is a complete natural reaction. It's a natural reflex for other people, sometimes including myself, it takes conscious, you know, effort and focus to, you know, put whatever is gnawing at you 
uh, in a box at least, you know, so that you're not, you're not making other people uncomfortable or making them dislike you, you know? Yeah. Once you recognize kind of that maybe irritability or you recognized the, the things that were manifesting in how you're communicating with others, or maybe you were being isolated in a lot of ways by this extreme unexpected circumstance. Like how did you intentionally keep that sense of community and keep relationships healthy uh, throughout this, throughout this whole medical scare? Well, I realized for me, and by the way, I'm still very much a work in progress. It's not mm. like I'm, you know, in a position of coming down from the mountaintop with the, with sure. the precious wisdom. It's uh <laughs> I still need to be corrected. I still need to be reminded of this all the time. But I'll say this. I, I, I have found a handful of things that do make a difference for me. And they're, they're all kind of obvious. But you know, I do find some dedication to the practice of meditation to help. Mm. I, uh, as I described in the book, if there's a need for therapy, either individual or couples therapy, I've done it all. Don't be embarrassed about that. If there's a need for medication, I mean, there was a time when I was seriously, you know, depressed and angry and anxious. And, you know, my wife basically said, you know, if, if you don't get some medication to address this, you know, our marriage is going to be over soon. Hmm. So, you know, it took me a while, you know, and I'm not proud to say it, you know, I, I it, it's kind of ridiculous that it took me that long to realize that that was there for me as an option. And then also, um, you know, we, in our particular family, we do have a faith practice. Uh, my wife is considerably more faithful than I am, but I, I do find that that helps among other things. And, uh, it goes without saying that exercise and diet and trying to moderate, uh, intake of intoxicants, all the things that, um, we're told so often, but don't actually pay attention to. It's all true. There are, <laughs> There, there's things to things to do and things to avoid, and they do make a difference. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one last question as far as networking, and then I'll transition us here into our random round. If you were to lose all of your current contacts, you've built up a a large book at this point of people that you could probably reach out to for advice or consult with about so many of these different topics. Um, if if you lost all your current contacts, what would you do to start building your network? If you were starting from ground zero and trying to restructure that, how would you start and what would you start doing? What steps would you take? That's such a great question. And one of the reasons it's great is because I sometimes fantasize about that. You know, I mean, I live in New York and it, it's, you know, all the good and bad of New York. And particularly when COVID hit, part of me was thinking, you know, Lord, let's move to Chattanooga. Let's move to Houston, Texas. Let's move to Sarasota, Florida, and just, you know, put this all behind us and start again. And, and what would we do? And the, the answer is I would probably search out some sort of uh, group that is dedicated to some higher purpose, either, and I don't mean necessarily religion, although if it were a church group, I wouldn't, I wouldn't poo-poo that. But, you know, if it's the, you know, going to school board meetings or going to, um, you know, neighborhood community meetings, uh, all these things where you meet people who are there for some reason other than their own immediate appetites, right? And if there's some sort of shared purpose, you're, you have a baseline of connection, right? It's not just like meeting some guy at a bar. You go into, yes, you're a stranger, but you're a stranger who is interested and, and at least dedicated to some sort of uh, higher purpose. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so trying to transition us here into our random round, I have a couple of questions I want to ask just to get a kind of rapid fire answer to each of these. Mm-hmm. What profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? Well, there's a nostalgic part of me that would love to be a teacher, but I would also really love to do something in the biotech space because that was one of the things that I learned a fair amount about, uh, and there's a good deal of that in the book, is this really amazing, fascinating revolution we're in right now with biotechnology, molecular biology, you know, genetic therapies, all the stuff that's going to be, you know, coming online. And we already, we already, just in the last few months, have seen this amazing breakthrough with the, the COVID vaccines, you know, what they're doing with messenger RNA and, and finding the proteins that are going to, you know, address the, the, uh, the, and create the needed immune response is breathtakingly remarkable. So I would love to be, uh, at the front line of that if I could, but I don't, I don't have a medical degree. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're using your skill sets to bring awareness, which I think is a really cool thing. And, and it's easy to start getting sidetracked of like, oh, should I go back to school and do this? Should I go this direction? And I think you've done a good job of taking those skill sets and using it to shed light on a topic that needs a lot, a lot more attention. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody, past or present, and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Well, so I have a slightly sentimental answer to that. My mom died uh, back in October, and I have to say that if I could pick anybody, I would love to spend just an hour with my mom again and just uh, enjoy her company because obviously I really miss her. And then, and the more kind of abstract or intellectual uh, answer would be, you know, some some amazing genius. Probably, you know, I'm a big fan of the, the classical music, of Baroque music of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm a huge fan of, you know, chess players like Magnus Carlsen and Gary Kasparov, who also is you know, now really into um, AI and pro- pro-democracy movements around the world. So that, that might be my choice, actually, Gary Kasparov. Hmm. And uh, how do you how do you like to learn best books? You, you mentioned not reading uh, a lot of books all the way through, so that might not be the answer. But books, blogs, podcasts, or videos, um, which, which one's your favorite means of learning? No, I I do read books. I, I read lots of books. I just don't finish lots of books. I start <laughs> many many books, and I get something out of every one of them. But I don't necessarily right. feel that I need to you know begin at page one and end on page uh, five hundred if I've, if I'm not you know being pulled in that direction. But yes, the 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 short answers are books, yes, and uh, podcasts. I hmm. find the podcast to be not just a wonderful way to learn, but, and this has been said a thousand times before, but just a beautifully liberating thing. Yeah. What I mean by that is if you're doing some tedious, mindless task, which I have to do a fair amount of times, right? Yard work, cleaning dishes, doing laundry. You have the ability to just slide on a podcast and suddenly, you know, the worst part of your day can become the best part of your day by dint of the fact that, you know, some really illuminating and enlightening conversations taking place while you're scrubbing spaghetti sauce off the dinner plate. Right. Yeah. You almost look for a chore so you can finish up the podcast you started the day before. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. What does that look like for you? Well, I live and die by the mornings. Okay. I mean, I, I firmly believe that, you know, you win the morning, you win the day, you lose the morning, you lose the day. That said, the morning can be tough, you know? So I basically 
um, I usually start work around between nine and nine thirty, and before that happens, I try to do you know at least two or three of the following things: get in some kind of workout, even if it's just walking, you know, uh, the dog for fifteen or twenty minutes. I try to do some sort of meditative practice. Again, even if it's only three minutes of sitting upright in bed by the mattress before I go brush my teeth, and I try to eat something. It doesn't matter if it's a huge breakfast or all five food groups, but I try to really make a point of not skipping breakfast. And then I also really try to have some sort of positive and um, loving interaction with my kids Hmm. because for me, it's often the case that there's nothing more elevating and beautiful in the morning than watching my son kind of toddle off to to school with his backpack on his little sneakers. And, um, it's, um, you know, it's what it's all about for us. Yeah, absolutely. What, what's your go-to pump up song? Uh, I'm a hip hop fan, old school hip hop fan. So I oftentimes will put on, um, some of the old school out, uh, anthems, but if I had to pick one, it would definitely be Eric B and Rakim's don't sweat the technique. Hmm. And if any of the audience has not heard that song, I insist, but right after this podcast, you go put it on. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely finish the show first and then go check it out. What's something (laughs) you're not very good at? There's a lot to choose from there. I'm not very good at a lot of things. One thing that I find very challenging is um, to the degree that I sometimes manage people is giving constructive criticism in a way that doesn't make people feel bad. Um, Some people are very good at this. And I've, you know, tried to read up on it and, you know, copy some of these methods, but um, and I'm not proud of this, but, you know, sometimes, you know, my tone of voice can just sound, you know, condescending or critical, even if I'm trying to be neutral and um, I need to work on that. And, you know, I, I promise to continue doing that, but it, it's not my, not my first natural gift. Right. Gotcha. And just the last question, what is one place online where people will find you the most? Uh, We'll include obviously all your links in the bio, but if someone wanted to connect with you right now, what's the best place to keep up with what you're doing? I'm pretty good about LinkedIn. I have a website, which is www.miguelsancho.net. I believe there's a Spanish model who's got miguelsancho.com. And that's you, right? um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, he might've written a great book too. But uh, no, I'm MiguelSancho.net, and then I'm on Facebook. I try to I try to be healthy about Facebook. I was into Twitter for a while, but then gosh, it gets so toxic, and I'm I'm you know I'm always worried about um, you know something I say on Twitter being misinterpreted. So I don't tweet as much as I uh, maybe should. And then um, my daughter tells me I've got to do Instagram more, but um, I mostly go on Instagram just to kind of see what other people are doing rather than posting. So yes, I would say LinkedIn, Facebook, and then check out the website. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to this episode, be sure to pick up a copy of more than you can handle. Just go ahead and order it right now. So you don't forget, Uh, just go ahead and head over to Amazon, grab a copy of that right now. And Miguel, thank you so much for sharing so much wisdom with our audience today. I really appreciate it. No, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, it's wonderful to, to learn from you too. So thank you for your wisdom. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Sweet. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.